you. Well, I'm Daniel Bawan, one of the pastors, and it's my joy to uh, be here and open God's Word together this morning. We are indeed taking a journey through the book of Genesis, and we are in chapter 29. Our sermon series is God's Blessed Up, Messed Up Family. And we basically look at the life of one of the key characters in the Christian faith, but also in the book of Genesis, Jacob. And this morning, we are going to look at a sermon, kind of a chapter 29, summarizing what goes around, comes around, because, well, his sins cannot follow him. And uh, he is going to drink the poison that he uh, made for, for his father in this chapter. So if you remember, we started uh, last, um, last week uh, on a journey. Jacob makes this journey from, uh, from his uh, place, uh, from his family in Beersheba. And he goes about a month, or even more than a month, he goes east toward, um, uh, toward Haran. He gets there, it's almost 600 miles. It's a long, long journey. And uh, once he travels there, he basically is, is running from his brother. His brother Esau wants to kill him. He just uh, kind of deceived and deceived his father, his brother. And his brother says, I'm going to kill you. And his mother says, you know, I, I am a good deceiver. I tricked your father. I don't know how to do with your brother. So my guess is just go back to your family, which is my family, Rebecca says, back in Haran and stay there, hide there, basically, from your father's anger. And that's what uh, Pastor Ron looked like last Sunday. It was the place where he met God when he took a stone. He had nothing with him, just his clothes. He was uh, basically broke and also on the run. He put a stone under his uh, head as a pillow, and God comes in, uh, in, in a dream to him. And then he says, this is Bethel, the place where God comes and, and shows himself to me. And God, in that revelation, makes another covenant with Jacob and promises him, I will be with you, I will be your God, and you are going to basically continue my line my messianic line. And we arrive after that powerful encounter with God at battle. He, uh, he moves to chapter 29, and this is where we're going to read. And Pastor Ron uh, did a nice animation for that, and as I'm going to read the text, he's going to uh, help me with that. So then Jacob, verse 1, continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep uh, lying near, near it because the flocks, they were watered from that well. When Jacob, uh, I skipped a few verses, he is talking with the shepherds and suddenly Rachel comes. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Usually four or five men will do that, but he did it by himself. And he says, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. Well, she did. And it was just a kiss of friendship, of greeting. Um, nothing romantic yet, yeah. 
And after, uh, after that, he goes to, uh, he's invited to Laban's house. He stays there. After uh, Jacob had stayed with him for a, a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. I guess he was a great worker, hard worker. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And I guess after one month there, Jacob was in love with Rachel. And he said, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. After the seven years, then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is it that you have done to me? I have served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Okay, finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also. In return for another Seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So in one week he gets two wives. And Jacob did. And Jacob made love to Rachel. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Time has passed, and when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. And that's interesting that uh, basically Leah and Rachel and Jacob, is going to, they, are, they are going to have a lot of other kids, and Jacob is the father of the twelve, what we call, tribes of Israel. Because he, he will have 12 boys that will continue and develop like 12 clans. And uh, as you know, God is calling himself, identifying himself, which is an amazing thing. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So then Jacob is part of that almost a self-definition of God. He says, this is who I am. I work through people like that. And I can transform lives like Jacob's lives. And if he can do that to Jacob, then he can do that to you and to me too. And um, it's a beautiful story, a lot of things in this story. I just want to pick a few items that I think that are uh, revealing to us and maybe uh, somehow will help us this morning to understand better of what God is doing. First of all, I would like to say, do you remember what they say? That he went east. And every time in the Bible, especially in the book of Genesis, when people move east, 
They move east because they want to basically run from God. There is some problem, and this is what also takes Jacob. He is running from his family, from his own sin, from his own deceit. And what goes around, comes around, what he will find out is that what he did to his father and to his brother is going to catch up with him no matter how far he goes. And Jacob will never have peace in his life and happiness until he comes back from the east. Back into where the promised land was to Abraham and Isaac, his father. And basically, Jacob is running like so many other people in the Bible. Cain is running east from God's judgment after he kills his brother. People go for vanity in the Tower of Babel. They run east. And then Abraham, it's alienation. He takes his concubines and all of their children and sends them east and says, you live in the east because the east is something that is alienation. It represents running from God. So maybe for you in West Michigan, you say, well, we live in West Michigan. The east side is not so bad. A lot of you are from Imlay City, right? And it's, it's a nice place there too. And, but, but just um, even the east coast is a nice place here. But for me, East, as I grew up, as I grew up, East was not good. I grew up in Eastern Europe, and yet freedom was Western. We call it the Western world, the Western Europe. Anything East, the more you go East, the more hunger you got. It was like the Soviet Union, Union, it was Siberia, it was labor camps, concentration camps, the Russian gulag. It was hunger, it was oppression, it was poverty, it was terror and fear. And finally, death. So for me, running east is not good, just as is in this story. But then there is something else. As he's running east, there is this place where God meets him in the stone. And at battle, remember, the stone is his pillow. And at battle, the stone represents the means by which he is meeting God. He is seeing God through this stone. And in this text, in Haran, is the stone is the, by, is, is the means by which God is going to meet. I mean, Jacob is going to meet Ra- Rachel. He is using this stone to kind of get in touch with her. And you will see later again that the stone comes in the story. But what's interesting is the stone was supposed to be lifted and moved by four, maybe six strong shepherds. There was no way that one person could move the stone. You see, in that time, in, in the ancient... Uh, in the Middle Eastern ancient villages, they had this well, and the well was protected by a stone, both from, from foreigners who might come and take advantage of the water that fed and, and watered the city, but also by the dust and the sand. You remember those sandstorms in the Middle East? They could just make the whole thing a mud instead of, of, of a well. So they had this a huge stone over the mouth of a well. Some people say that uh, maybe he... Uh, he was like Samson, you know. He, he was a Samsonian act because God just told him at the stone in Bethel, I will be with you, which means I will give you strength. So maybe God just gave him strength for that moment, and he had a Samsonian strength like Samson in the Bible. But he moved the stone by himself. Or maybe I will say he was more like many of us, I guess, men who like to impress a girl, right? We see somebody and say, how do I get her attention? How, how do I grab her eyes? How do I make her notice me? And then, you know, Rachel is there and he thinks, wow, you know, she's so beautiful. Suddenly it's like love at first sight for him. So even for us, I guess, maybe you try different tricks that if you look back today, you think, oh, where was my mind when I did that, right? Maybe you went, you know, you know uh, snowmobiling on Green Lake or something like that. I don't know. Some people did, but... You do things that you want to impress somebody. You want to impress somebody. 
And uh, Jacob is doing the same thing. And it's, it's a beautiful story. And how he's falling in love with this girl, how he's trying to get her attention. And if you look at the next, you know, things that it's happening, it's like, it's like a plot that is so common to a few chapters earlier when Abraham sought a wife for Isaac. He did the same thing. He sent his servant back home and said, bring me a wife for my son Isaac. And it's the same story. And the plot goes like that. Somebody like a servant or a man goes to a foreign distant land. Then they stop at a well, which is like a social gathering. Like I said, you, st- you stop at the well and only when everybody's there, all of the sheep are there, then you open the well. And then a girl comes to the same well and then the hero draws water for her. And then the girl returns home to report, wow, somebody was so nice to me, who is this person? And then the man is invited to her home. And then finally the whole thing ends with a beautiful wedding and the marriage. Either the the, the owner of the servant marries the girl, or in this case, Jacob himself is going to get married to Rachel. And it's almost, uh, I don't watch Hallmark movies, but... My wife and my daughter, they do like those because they're very clean and a lot of romantic love and stuff. But even the hallmark, I mean, the plot, if you look at them, they told me that it's the same thing. It's like somebody from a big city like New York or Chicago goes to a small town, maybe a business assignment, and while they're there for a week or so, they fall in love with, with a girl or a boy who is there, and then, and then uh, the young man goes back home, and, she, and, and, and then she is kind of devastated in the small town. But he finds that there's no happiness without her. So then he leaves the big town, the big city, comes in the small town, and they get married, and it's a happy ending, right? So it's, it's the same thing here. It's a beautiful story of love, of, of getting in love, and, and even the custom of greeting. Have you noticed the custom? How do they greet each other? In, in this case, Rachel gets a kiss immediately from Jacob. It's not a romantic kiss. It's just a greeting kiss. And then the, the story says that he was weeping loud, aloud. Why? He was weeping aloud because finally, in the midst of all of those Eastern people, he finds somebody from his family. That was a n- nice, nice kind of, uh, for him, it's a, it's a cry of joy. I remember when I was fixing my paperwork in this country, um, I went back to Romania after seven years of not being able to go back. Seven years. So when I went back after seven years, I, I, I knocked at the door. My parents opened the, uh, the door to their house, their home, and I went him. I kissed them because even here is a kiss, right? And then uh, after we hugged and kissed, and in Romania we do kiss on both cheeks. In Russia you kiss on the lips, so that's okay. But it's not a romantic kiss, it's a greeting kiss. But it just, I just went, I remember at the end of the kitchen, and I just start crying. Because I felt so emotional. I felt God has blessed me after so many years to see my family again. And that was an emotional cry of joy, of, of giving thanks to God. You know, He is good. And that's what, what happens here. And then she gets this kiss. Uh, she gets, he, he's, you know, he's crying. And then she says, something is happening here, something special. So she runs back home to tell her father what's happening. Of course, the stone is moved away, so he's quite impressive, but he's a relative. And then Laban comes, and what is he doing? He runs toward Jacob, and then again they give a kiss, and even he goes way beyond the, the, the call of duty, and he embraces him. So suddenly, suddenly Laban says, you are part of my family. And as they, uh, they stay together uh, in the same house for one month, kind of Jacob maybe shows no desire to leave that place. Where would he live? He's still kind of a fugitive. He's trying to find refuge from the wrath of his own brother. 
And then um, they come to an agreement and they say, uh, Laban says basically, you should work for me, but for a wage. Uh, what would you like me to pay? And then Jacob is very honest and he says, you know what, I don't want any money, I am, I am broke. But what I want is, I fell in love with your daughter Rachel. Would you give me her hand? And that's what he wants. And then Laban says, yeah, okay, uh, you can have. But, but imagine, I mean, an uncle saying, yeah, you can have your cousin. But think about who is this Laban who made kind of this agreement with Jacob. So Jacob is running. He tells them, you know, the story. My guess is that he said to them, you know, I cheated. I deceived my father. My brother is chasing me. I need refuge. And they say, you can stay here. Who sent you? Your mom. Oh, okay, my sister. That's good. She kind of plotted the whole thing. Jacob told, oh, okay. And then she told you to come here. Yeah. So now you want to marry my daughter. Yeah. So Laban kind of said, okay, I'll take care of it. Yeah, just, just do seven years, okay? And Jacob offered seven years. But who is Laban? I mean, he's the brother of Jacob's mother, who was the deceiver in chief. I mean, I mean she was somebody that knew how to deceive. And then, then he has two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And Leah was the weak eyes. She was the firstborn. So think of Esau. She was like Esau, the firstborn. But she had a defect. We don't know what. But something was wrong with her eyes. And then uh, the younger one is beautiful and attractive. And Jacob falls in love. But look at his integrity, even in that moment. Jacob works seven years for Rachel. And his love for her is the same from the first day, maybe growing, because the Bible says that it fell to him like a few days, maybe one day for every year. He felt, oh, I've been here just a week. Because he lived there to marry her. And what's interesting is that he maintains in all those seven years, can you imagine living in the same house, knowing that this is going to be my wife, knowing that I already asked for her hand from, my, from her father, and he maintains his integrity and her purity. It's an amazing thing. Seven years of engagement. The engagement is as strong, I would say, as Mary and Joseph later, when Mary was kind of betrothed to Joseph, promised. And yet they are still pure. It's a wonderful thing that Jacob is keeping his integrity and her chastity in those seven years. But then comes the wedding. Seven years are done. And he says, well, I want, I want to, now I want to just have my wife. Can I go into honeymoon? And Laban says, okay, so he gathers the people, makes a big feast, and usually the wedding was seven days, and this is the end of the first day. They might have had a little bit of uh, wine to drink like they would use in that time, and Jacob goes into the nuptial room, and then Laban takes somebody veiled, and uh, he was thinking it's Rachel, but this is the there's no, there's no talking, right? I mean, how come she goes into the room? And she doesn't say anything. I mean, no words, no, hey, hello, or something. I, know, I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting that he goes in, she comes in, and then they have the first night together. And in the morning, he wakes up and he says, and there was Leah. Oh, wow, what a surprise. He, I think, can you imagine him just looking around and saying, what on earth I did it? You know, who is this person here, like Leah? Because he, all the time he thought that he was going to marry Rachel, the love of his life. The one that he uh, kind of served for seven years. So Jacob, I will say, who was the subject of the deceit. He was the deceiver of his father. He went in his father, put clothes, you know, sheepskin on him and said, Hey, look, here, I am Esau. 
Look, here is the, the hunting. I mean, he, he lied so much. He deceived so much his father. And now he becomes the object of deceit. And Jacob is caught basically in the same device that he, he himself once used. He, you know, pretended to be Esau, the, the firstborn, the older brother, in front of Isaac, his father. And now what happens is that Leah pretends to be Rachel, the younger sister, next to Jacob. What goes around comes around. Later, the proverb says that you reap what you sow. I mean, it's, 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 it's catching up with him. And Jacob gets tricked by his own uncle. If he thought that his mother is good, maybe she had a bachelor in trickery. Jacob maybe had a master, but Laban had a PhD. I mean, he was at the top of his game. He kind of was in control all the time. He knew what's going on. And look, I mean, all the time Jacob felt that, you know, something is going to interfere between him and his happiness. And that was his problem. He always tried to solve. You remember at home, he thought that he needs the blessing of the father. Without the blessing of Isaac, he thought, I cannot leave. So the older brother stood Esau between Jacob and the blessing. And, and basically, he said, I need that blessing. I, I want to be happy. I want to have a happy life. But I need to take that blessing from my brother. In this case, the older sister stands between Jacob and Rachel, the love of his life. And in the first case, is Rebecca, his mother, who comes and says, I can fix that. I will deceive your father, and I will deceive your brother. And do what I say, and everything will be fine. You'll get the blessing. And he does get, get the blessing. But man, what a, what a mess afterwards. Because she is just a little bit. He, he, she gives her an advice. You do these two steps. I don't know what's going to happen after. I, I don't guarantee. So if, if she would have told Jacob, you know, you do what I say, but then you will run, and for 20 years you'll never see your father again, he would have said, wait a minute, is it worth for me doing this? But no, she, gives, she tricks him too, in a way. The mother gives him bad advice because she was a deceiver too. But then he goes to the house of his uncle, her brother, Laban. And Laban is in control from the first moment. I mean, he knows what's going on. I think he planned this from the beginning. And sin goes in this family. The deceiver gets deceived. The mother and the brother are deceivers in charge. And all of that sin in Rebecca's side of the family goes and trickles down. And the whole family is going to live in deceit and is going to keep going like that. Jacob, like his mother, he's going to show parental favoritism like she was showing marital. So he is going to favor Rebecca and Rachel. Rebecca favored him. He's going to favor Rachel versus Leah. And God will see that Leah is not loved. And he will solve that by making her have the first babies. Leah, in fact, mothers one child for each of the seven years Jacob put in for Rachel. And if you look at Leah's, Leah's children, he, she starts with Reuben. And although she was a pagan, right? She was in a far distant land. She didn't worship this God of Jacob, of Abraham, of Isaac, you know? Leah suddenly wants to say, I want to win my husband's love. Maybe now he will love me, and then puts his name. And then second says, 
you know, I, I have Simeon, I'm still not loved. The third one is Levi, who is going to continue the line of priesthood. But the fourth one is Judah, which means I will praise him. Finally, Leah realizes that her happiness is not in being loved by her husband, because she might not be able to do that ever. But she says, I will praise the Lord because he loves me. He listens to me. Look what he's doing to me. He's giving me these children. And indeed, the line of the Messianic, Jesus Christ, is going to come through Leah and through Judah, not through Rebecca. Although she will have a nice set of boys too. You know, remember Joseph? He kind of saves everybody else. But he's still not in the Messianic line. It is Leah and it is Judah that continue that Messianic line. So you say, this is a beautiful story, but what about us? What are we running from, you know? What are you hiding from, you know? Maybe you want to run from your own sins. Maybe you run from your own family, from your boss, from, uh, from a situation that is financial, from a company that is in distress. I'm not sure what you're running from. But you must stop running. Jacob stopped, and several times God will come to him. And the story continues next Sunday, but... How do you stop from running? How do you stop from running? First of all, you invite the Spirit to say, you know, I, I want to stop. Take, come and take control. I, I confess that I did something wrong. I did a sin. And I, I feel remorse. I repent. I will never do it. And you ask forgiveness and you change. That's what Jacob is going to learn. He's going to change and ask forgiveness of his brother. But even if you do that, deceit might still be in your life. Sin will still be with us. But how do you handle it? How do you handle deceit? You know, in the book of Genesis, we have a lot of sins recorded, deceit too. But it doesn't mean that just because they are recorded, it is God's will for us to sin. It is never God's will for us to sin. If you think about doing a sin willfully, yes, if you repent, God will forgive you. He might even use you like he is using Jacob. He did those deceiving acts willfully. God still used him. God has still used Leah. But the consequences remain. You see, Jacob had to run from home. He couldn't change that immediately. It was a long consequence of his sins. And I like what Tim Keller says. He says, you never commit sin. Sin commits you. What is he trying to say? He says, Jacob goes through utter hell. If you think about what he goes through, sin is going to trickle down. His own children will, will, will deceive Joseph, remember, and sold him in slavery. We want to kill him. So hell begets hell. Lie begets lie. Sin begets sin. You never sin. You don't do it. It does you. You never sin and pass away. Sin is like a boulder. Sin is like dropping a boulder into water. And there are shockwaves. And they go out forever. Anything that's a violation of God's will for how people should live together, you never get away with it. You don't do sin. Sin does you. Once you let sin in your life, you think, oh, it's just a little thing. No, no, no. It's like poison. It's going to poison you. So what are you running from? How do you handle it? And finally, remember uh, Leah, that God sees her in the distress and says, I love you. I love you because your husband is not loving you, and I'm going to give you even more than you have. So in conclusion, I will say this. No matter what we do, remember that God is the one that frees you. He frees you from deceit, from lying, from sin. He is the one that even today in Christ Jesus, He gives us freedom. And He is the one that sees your situation like He saw Leah, like He saw Jacob. Maybe you are being deceived or maybe you are the deceiver. Or maybe you receive no love. Where should you receive love? 
And finally, remember that no matter who loves you or not, God is on your side. He loves you. He cares for you. And that's why we will come in a few moments here at the table. Because he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. This is where we come to receive that love of God that the world cannot give to us. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for Christ Jesus, for his power, for his mercy, for his grace. We give you thanks that in Christ Jesus we can worship you and know that we have a love, a God who loves us. A love, a God who can break the power of sin in our lives. And you are the one who can give us hope in the midst of a hopeless, sinful situation. So break the shackles of sin in our lives, in our families. May you renew our families with a sense of holiness, with a sense of being able to live a righteous life. Break the power of sin in our lives and in the life of our children and our families. And may you continue to chase those who feel unloved. And show your love to all of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.